Hey, and welcome back to episode four of the Coffee Trading Academy podcast. Today we have on a special guest who, without exaggeration, is probably the most famous cocoa trader who has ever lived. When I first joined the coffee business in 2010, all that anyone could talk about was Anthony Ward and his latest trade in the cocoa market. Anthony's trading career in cocoa spanned 40 years and also includes 30 years of successful coffee and sugar trading. The reason I call Anthony the most famous cocoa trader of all time is because of a series of massive physical trades that he conducted from the 1990s through the first decade of the 21st century, where he essentially cornered the cocoa market, earning rich profits for himself and his company and significant media attention. Anthony is a fascinating individual for a lot of reasons, but what struck me was his commitment to the fundamentals. Anthony's best trades were made based on deep, fundamental analysis, an understanding of supply and demand, but more than that, an understanding of the connection between futures and physicals. In this episode, he's going to tell us about his background, his trading philosophy, some of his biggest trades, and where he sees the coffee and cocoa markets headed in the next few months. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Mr. Anthony Ward. I wanted to hear a little bit about how you got into the industry and uh, how you got started uh, as a trader. And, and if you can work it in, I read somewhere that you, you started as a motorcycle courier. So maybe you can uh, uh, elaborate on what, what that part was. Okay, so I can, uh, how did I start? So I, uh, I left school and I was meant to be going to a, com- a company called Pete Marwick, which today is KPMG. And they used to take two non-graduates in the UK every year and I got one of those places. Uh, I was quite good at maths, that was my strength. Mm. Uh, But if you did that, you had to do a nine month foundation course. And um, that didn't look very attractive. Uh, The whole thing, you know, it was kind of discussed with my dad what to do. And so actually often be a motorbike messenger, which was very highly paid. Okay. So to give, give you an idea, as a motorbike messenger, it took me at least seven years in the industry, the futures and co- co- cocoa industry, to get paid the same as I was making per week. <laughs> wow. So it was a very high death rate. Very few people survived more than more than really three months. Wow. Because cars didn't have uh, cybers. Mm. So it's... So in, in, in England, uh, no cars had mirrors on the side, you know, where, you, where the door is uh, for looking right and left. They just had internal mirrors for looking. Wow. So motorbikes, we were doing like 60 miles an hour down the middle of a, of a uh, of Piccadilly, and a taxi would just do a U-turn right in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> so you... Uh, so, uh, you got paid, you got paid uh, high-risk money, and it was really good fun, actually. I mean, I, I basically, in my way around London backwards, and I still do. Yeah. And yeah, then I've got some older sisters, and one of them worked for Russell Reynolds, which is a famous American headhunting firm. Her boss interviewed me as that I should be either a money broker or a commodity trader. So I had no idea what either of those things were. Uh, you know, I was only 18. What did I know? Nothing. And um, so he arranged for me to spend a day with a money broker and a commodity trader. And the money broker guy drank so much. I didn't really drink uh, in those days. I played a little sport. And uh, he drank so much. I said, oh, I can't do that. I've got two commodities. 
And um, then I got offered uh, two jobs and I asked the, the recruiter which one was best. I guess he worked out what he got the most money for. And I joined a company called Syme Derby. Mm. And Syme Derby to then was a FTSE 100, so UK, like a, like a Dow Jones right. company. Uh, so a very big company. And it was the largest landowner in Malaysia. And it was also a huge landowner in India. So the Malaysian government, I was their last international trainee. So about six months after I joined, the Malaysian government basically bought water. Then they sold off the bits that weren't Malaysian. And uh, so I went there as a trainee and um, they had many, many departments, including cocoa, rubber and tea, in fact. And um, so the boss of that firm said, look, you know, you should definitely leave. You know, you're not Asian and they, they want it to be Asian, this business. Right. Uh, so you should move. So I don't know how you move. So anyhow, the, the Coco guy was a person called David Symington. And he rang a friend of his who was a broke, ran, uh, was head of the Coco business at EF Hutton. Hmm. EF Hutton uh, disappeared with Lehman Brothers eventually. But EF Hutton was a very famous US brokerage. Right. And ironically, they had a physical cocoa business in London. So I went to this firm as a physical broker. And that was in, uh, when was that? that was in 1980. Now, if I can stop you for a sec, you said that you worked for a company um, uh, that got bought by a Malaysian firm. Um, and this was in London or you were in Malaysia where they said they wanted I was, all? No, I was in London and the it was a FTSE 100 company, so big right. UK conglomerate. Mm. The Malaysian government basically bought the company. Okay. So because the government bought it, they wanted to have uh, Malaysians in charge, in, basically. I guess so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it still exists, that company, and I think they're all Malaysians. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so sorry <laughs> to interrupt. but uh, so, so then you started as a uh, cocoa broker, I guess, right? A cocoa broker. Mm-hmm. It's from EF Hutton, uh, which eventually became Shares American Express, then Sherman, Shares, and then Lehman, and then of course disappeared. Right. Uh, so I was there and as a trainee, and I got given 20 clients to call. Obviously, the 20 clients that no one else could do business with. <laughs> so the most difficult people. Um, so in those days, there were many, many small traders. So firms that traded um, a bit more like the coffee business is today. So we probably had, um, I was one of six people uh, in London. So we probably had 120 clients that we spoke to. And no one would do business with America, say. So that was done via the American office. But not, we couldn't call, we couldn't call America. It was right. kind of not for so it was kind of all, it was all very backward, quite different, really. <laughs> and phone calls were very expensive. So, you know, the cost of making a phone call to Africa was hugely high. Sure. Uh, these guys had a very good relationship with the Ghana Cocoa Board, which was basically the monopoly for Ghana. Mm. And, um, and still is. And uh, that was a great basis for them to have a good business. So they'd buy from Ghana and sell it onto the big cocoa dealers in the world. 
uh, among other things. Right. And so everything, Ivory Coast, Nigeria was state-run. And uh, they were all very different to what you have today, where you have kind of much more freedom. Um, right. And back and then, it, was it, Ghana it, the it, biggest producer, or was Ivory Coast still the biggest producer at that point? Uh, 1979, Ivory Coast had just had overtaken Ghana. Okay. So 1965, Ghana was by far the largest. By far. Got it. Ghana went from being the largest to a very paltry number. I mean, down, down to below number two. And today, the number two again. Right. I heard they just made a million, uh, million tons uh, recently. Uh, not this yeah, last year, no. but the, the previous, I think. Yeah, but smuggling probably helps. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Ghana. <laughs> and and Nigeria used to be uh I, I read Nigeria used to be one of the big producers as well, right? And then I think when the government took over, the very dynamic changed. Producer. Yeah, Nigeria was a very important producer. Um so you basically the good cocoa was really Ghana, Nigeria, and Nigeria were considered the best qualities. And then have you heard of a place called Togo? Yeah. Okay, so Togo also was a was good quality, and Ivory Coast was the last of those, really. Uh, so that so that that was a huge change. Basically, a guy called Hukwe Buni, who was mm. the president of Ivory Coast, um, he a very impressive guy. The World Bank advised him to plant cocoa in the in the seventies uh, when cocoa went to very high prices, and thinking the price would never come back down to what it actually did. <laughs> so they planted a huge amount of cocoa. And Ghana, in the meantime, was in a state of flux and political, uh, many political uncertainties. So Ivory Coast became very important. Uh, yes, yeah, so that, that's basically how I started. And then E.F. Hutton, uh, the guy who was in charge there, someone called Mark Seymour, he left and set up his own company called V. Berg. Okay. And son. And V. Berg and Sons, I went to with this guy. And that's when I ended up first in America. So I came to America in 1983 and started doing business directly with Hershey and Mars America, which has sort of not been done before. So you were you were in New York City or? I was in New York City, but I was going backwards and forwards. I wasn't, I, I was there for maybe a week a month. New York City was very bit different back then too, huh? It was uh, that was a rough place <laughs> in 1983. It was a horrible place. <laughs> yeah, New York City was pretty nice actually <laughs> compared with London. Fair enough. <laughs> so you were you were you were quite comfortable. <laughs> yeah, everything's relative. So that's how I started my career, and I became more American known. Because uh, I think within by 1988, I was Hershey's biggest supplier. Okay. And we ended up having a big office in New York and lots of people. That was at V-Berg. And then I had a bus up with V-Berg. I left and I went to um, Fibro of Salomon Brothers. Mm. And I ended up being head of their cocoa division. And, um, and then their coffee division and their sugar division. At, at this point, I, I, were you was this all brokering? So, like, you 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 didn't have origin yeah. operations that were your own. You just had to know everybody uh, and have a network. 
Um, when I was at Fibro, I didn't uh, have origins uh, uh, because that just, they didn't want to do that. We, we, were, we were the biggest buyer from Ivory Coast. Okay. And we did deals already with the government. We were also the biggest buyer from Ghana. So I used to go down there and do big deals with these guys and um, then come back again. It, it was actually, it was quite easy. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so that was that was actually much better and easier mm. uh, than, than the alternatives and, and worked and work very well. Yeah. Uh, and then in 98, well, that whole group got taken over by Citibank. Mm-hmm. And you had Glass-Steagall still. So banks weren't allowed to own commodities doing food. Right. So they had to get out of the cooker, coffee, and sugar business. And I set up Armajara. And that's how Armajara started in 98, basically on the back of taking over the business of Fibro. Okay. So basically, the bank reg- the regulation said that the banks had to get out of the commodity business. And so you already had that. Um, you, you understood it. You knew it well. You were controlling it. So you were able to sort of convert that into Armajara? Well, I... For, for Fibro, they also had commitments uh, far forward with Ivory Coast trying to get some money back. So mm. they couldn't really walk either. So we came to a good good compromise for both parties. Okay, cool. And so it was good for, them, good for me, and I set up my own business. Okay. And that was 1998, you said? That was 98. Okay. And um, Armajaro, you ran that for... Probably, yeah, what is it, 15 years, I guess? Uh, well, I ran the physical business uh, until 2007. Mm. And then in 2007, I basically did a deal with Lint, uh, where we would be the sole supplier of African cocoa to them. And that was an important turning point because I considered the business then should be. And we mm. were basically making a pretty much a fixed margin, buying it, selling it, and guaranteeing it was traceable and sustainable. Right. Uh, so we didn't really, we should, in theory, we should have needed millions of traders to do that. Hmm. Didn't really work out like that, but that's what should have happened. <laughs> and uh, so I stepped aside from the day to day of doing that and I ran, I set up CC. Now, before we get into CC, had you, had you been dabbling with prop trading this whole time? Have you kind of, were you, or prop trading? You- I've, been a, I've been a prop trader since, um, Basically, since 1984. Okay. So, EF Hutton basically um, was a broker, but they were really prop trading. Feeberg mm-hmm. was a so I was really always a prop trader. Oh, interesting. Okay, so when you when I think of a physical broker, like especially in the coffee market, they're not touching the futures at all, as, as far as I as far as I'm concerned. They're basically just getting commission on on you know uh, containers of coffee. But uh, you guys were very well informed it sounds like and well connected to all the key players in the industry so you have yeah. a had a prop account uh, sort of alongside your your brokerage business yeah well there's a there's a slight difference here we can you can be a prop trader without using futures okay How, can you I elaborate mean, there's, on that? No, there's nothing wrong with selling fifty thousand tons to hershey and then deciding when you want to buy it back hmm. okay i got it so um, uh, I, some people do, some people don't. And so we always had positions. And actually the risk uh, on differentials, which I think is what you're talking about in coffee, 
I mean, those are huge risks. I think it's less risky having an outright position in coffee. No, no what Colombian coffee's done this year. Yeah. <laughs> and Honduras, et cetera. So, you know, those, those risks are pretty big. Uh, so having an outright position, which I think you're calling prop trading, I think it's very normal. You need to have that to, to protect yourself against the market. Mm. So you were essentially buying uh, physical and speculating that it was going to go up or selling it short ahead of time and expecting that you could buy it back and, and make a nice profit in between. Or all, all during futures. So all of the above. Hmm. Okay. And, and you were trading futures as well and, uh, and, and dabbling as if, we're not, if, we you know, to, if we want, if we wanted to, but you know, right. they're all interrelated. Hmm. So I think that's where people didn't really understand our business model. You know, our business model was completely interrelated. So in other words, in our view, a future becomes a fungible physical asset. Right. And we demonstrated that several times over the years. And people still mm -hmm. didn't understand. <laughs> yeah, that's still the case, right? Uh, they have a lot yeah. of hedge funds in New York um, sort of uh, using that market as a, as a proxy. But uh... Well, except you know, they never take delivery. Yeah. So no, unless you take delivery, no one takes you seriously. Mm. And you, uh, you, you put that to the test a couple of times, I, I believe, right? <laughs> well, I think the first time we did it was in the early 90s. And then 96 was very all time um, when I was at Fibro. Can you walk us through that scenario? What happened? Did you, did you have to like, get approval? Were you like, hey, here's the plan. Let's, uh, let's do this. Or was it something you kind of started acquiring over time and you saw an opportunity? How did that play out? Uh, well, we had a plan, of course. So, you know, we looked at So the number one thing is, Let's see what the differentials are doing. So if the differentials of Ivory Coast Cocoa are trading at 100 over the futures market, mm -hmm. then you should just keep selling that and just keep buying the futures. Mm -hmm. And then you say to the market, you're actually not going to roll your futures. You're going to say, please deliver me the cocoa. Mm -hmm. And they have to deliver the cocoa at level par right, or less. Uh, so that way you've you've hedged, done nothing improper at all. You've already sold the cocoa to end end users, and the cocoa either has to give you cocoa, buy them somewhere else, or buy back the futures. So every time I've been, I've done this, it's basically well thought through mm. why we're doing it. You you can never do it against the market, right? You know. So if if the if the if the um, if your numbers are wrong, it won't work. Hmm. And 1996 is a very good example of that, where we were very long and we got it all. <laughs> and that was because the mid-crop um, ended up being a record size hmm. and not just a small record, a record by about 50%. Right. Wow. So it was so enormous, it was unpredictable. And that killed the trade. But in the end, we made money out of it because we held on and we had hedges against it. But at the time, it was pretty unpleasant. And what, what, what really said the day was coffee. So coffee in 97, I think. Mm. 90, was it 97? I think it was 97. Yeah. 97. Frost. Yeah, we had a frost scare and we had a very big long position. Mm. So we made a lot of money out of that. And that took care of the cocoa crop.
<laughs> now it's funny coffee and cocoa are similar in some ways right because they're both tree crops they both are grown in sort of a similar uh, tropical environment uh, but very different commodities as well um, so were you able to leverage your background in cocoa into coffee and kind of become an expert in both or did you have to surround yourself with uh, with I, I imagine you had good researchers and stuff on your team at the time or, or how did what was your relationship with coffee versus cocoa? Uh, they, they're just so completely different. So I think um, I understand how to trade and I understand what the risk that's transferable against every commodity. Hmm. But, you know, I always consider coffee to be a delicatessen business. You know, everyone who does coffee, they actually care what it tastes like. They cup it and all this nonsense. Right. Okay. And you know, doing a doing a contract for a, for a five hundred bags actually means something. Yeah. Now in cocoa, doing contract five hundred bags is not even worth getting out of bed for. <laughs> so it's just a completely different mindset. You know, cocoa is an ingredient. Mm. That's the way to look at it in chocolate. Okay, along with milk and sugar, and there are lots of different cocos, but West African cocoa is pretty similar. Mm. And you've got some very important cocos from Ecuador uh, for taste, and you've got some other important, et cetera. But since 85% of the world's cocoa comes from Africa, or 75%, you know, that in the end is what chocolate is, you know, uh, predominantly made from West African cocoa. So <clears throat> there's two very important differences if you look at how the relation, the behavior of people are in cocoa and coffee. In cocoa, because it's an ingredient and a volatile ingredient, mm. uh, the industry likes to have a long, long cover. So it's really not unusual for a major chocolate industry to have 12 months cover. Interesting. In coffee, where it's on the shelf, okay, I mean, what are you doing? You're a roaster? You, you roast it. That's it. <laughs> if you have 12 months, percent you're screwed. Mm. Because the guy who doesn't have the cover can undercut you in all the supermarkets. Right. So they're so scared about having too much cover that they all have no cover. Mm. Coffee, I'd say normal cover is probably 12 weeks as opposed to 12 months. And it wouldn't be surprising to see them go to four weeks or probably in this market, two weeks. Yeah, I guess with the logistical concerns, that's that's become a problem now. I think a lot of roasters are starting to try to build up a little bit of pipeline because, uh, you know, that two weeks or four weeks uh, becomes quite scary when there's no more containers and uh, Brazil can't ship anything. Um, but yeah, it's a that's an important difference between the two. <laughs> yeah, so I think that, that so they're very different. So you know, co coffee's a finished product basically, and coke is an ingredient. Right. Okay. And people uh, care like, uh, oh, I want a Colombian coffee. But for the most part, I guess Hershey's isn't selling uh, single origin chocolate bars, right? So exactly. They're, people are buying a Hershey bar. Exactly. Okay. It's obviously a big mistake to do that, but you know, you'd rather buy you'd rather buy a Lindt bar. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so at uh, 2000, was it 2007 that you set up CC plus? Yes. Yes. Okay. And uh, obviously, the name was from coffee and cocoa and and more, or yeah, exactly. Um, uh, play on words to coffee, cocoa plus, and the pluses were every other food I could I wanted to trade. Hmm. 
Okay. And you got, so you got your fix for trading at this point, but you were still connected to Armajaro. Did you, you considered it sort of part of Armajaro uh, at this point? Like you could, you could still take uh, delivery of, of the commodity, for example. Um, of course I could. Uh, I, I could use Armajaro. I could use other parties. Mm. So uh, CC plus had large amounts of money and CC plus was uh legally uh very carefully written could take delivery right was a major selling point of the fund Mm. was we were expected to take delivery and did you ever uh so famously um you you did take delivery in i think 2010 um and i think 2007 you might have also taken delivery um did you ever uh, if coco was that an option in coffee? Did you ever think, how can we do this in Robusta, for example? Did you ever look, explore that and see if that was something you could do? Yeah, we did it. We did it. Uh, we did it. Um, we did it in Robusta. Okay. And you'll find that the rules in Robusta and warehousing has changed. That's all because of us. Uh-huh. We took delivery and we couldn't get the coffee out. Okay. When was this? So, I don't know. I can't remember exactly, but you know, um, in the probably 2010, 2011, 2012. Okay. I can't remember exactly. Hmm. But we, we took delivery and then we ended up having to sue everybody. The warehouses, the warehouses said uh, your coffee for 430 days. Hmm. So I said, no, no, it's mine. I want to take it out. <laughs> they said, oh, sorry, we're too busy. We're too busy for you to take it out. So now the rules have all been changed. The UK hmm. rules or the life, uh, the ICE Europe rules. And the guy wants to take it out. The warehouse has to deliver it out within 30 days, all of it. So the coffee guys were were pretty bad like that. Mm. And they were all obviously interrelated. So some of the big traders owned warehouses or had stakes in them. And they were basically running it through the back door. So the warehouses were were basically running the market, but in fact, it was ready for the trade. And so I had some really big fights in coffee with all these people and in the end we've won but we lost <laughs> fair enough <laughs> um now uh one of the things that coco, in coco even with the same warehouse keepers they just didn't do that right so you kind of had you weren't able to uh, so you successfully were able to take delivery uh as a strategy but it wasn't as efficient. It wasn't as profitable as it was in, in the cocoa market. No, it was unprofitable because we couldn't actually use the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fair enough. <laughs> Whereas with the cocoa market, we seem to be able to use it. <laughs> yeah. I was pretty outrageous. It was outrageous. <laughs> Sounds um, funny now, but it was outrageous. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but at least hey, you got the, the the laws changed, right? So um, yeah. in the end, uh, I guess you made your mark. So one of the things, uh, or, or one of the things I did want to ask you about is you trained up uh, a lot of people in your time in in the cocoa business and in the coffee business and and in CC Plus. Uh, I worked with some of them at Ecom. Um, I'm still friends with uh, uh, a couple of them uh, that uh, that are still trading in the market in various places, um, and also you trained researchers. 
Um, so what did you, when, if we're talking about traders specifically, what did you look for when hiring a trader and what did you try to cultivate in them? How did, what was your, your sort of philosophy with, with, uh, bringing up traders? Okay. I, th I think, um, I think the successful ones, uh, have all got one thing in common. They all have unlimited energy. So if you're looking for, uh, the, the best people, they mm. always have that. And to be a good trader, you need to be very humorous. So you can be an okay trader and not mm -hmm. be humorous, and you can be an okay trader and not full of energy. But if you've got both those two things, you have at least a chance to be good. Mm. And um, most people think they're numerate when they're not. So, you know, numerate basically means that you are able without thinking at all to know that a spread is the wrong price mm. without it even consideration of thought it's just automatic you see it in the world who, who understand that and, uh, and that would apply that would apply to every market so it works in coffee it works in coca it works in everything like basically you see a misprice and if you see a misprice, then that's an opportunity. And the good traders see a misprice before anyone else sees it. Was that something you had to like, did you explicitly test for that? Or you could kind of just feel them out when you're talking to them and, and watch them and see that this, this one has that sort of numeracy, they've got that energy. Um, or did you have kind of a process you went through? No, honestly, you can't tell. <laughs> I, I wish you could. <laughs> You, um, it's actually really not possible from interviewing people, in my experience, to get it. You can tell who's no good. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell who's good? No. You, you really, really can't. And if we look today in the markets, you know, there's a lot of amateur people. Uh, who are running very important businesses mm. from and um, you know was it obvious when those guys started that they would be the best uh, no was it obvious that they had the potential yes but we've had a lot of fallers <laughs> you had to kiss a lot of frogs huh <laughs> yeah 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 and you know they they're all were pretty good actually, but they just didn't have that 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 real kind of intuition. Yeah, that's interesting. That's actually I think Hank kind of uh, expressed a similar. Um, he he gave some some different uh, answers to that question, but he kind of concluded with a similar conclusion. I think, which was sort of that you never can really tell exactly who's going to be the uh the successful ones versus the okay ones mm. strange strange but you can't now in a related uh note what about the research department armajaro had famously had a, a very strong research department in both cocoa and coffee um especially and i know those those folks are still around doing the, the same same business how involved were you in setting up the research departments and uh, what did you look for when you were, when you were hiring them or when you, when let's start with hiring them, what did you look for in your research teams? 
Okay, so I was very involved with research. Okay, I uh, I think research is critical, and you know we we all can get data that's public, but how do we have an edge over the other guy? Mm. And uh, trading anything, you know, you need to have more information than the other people, and then you need to be able to process that process that information in a useful way. And you've also got to know what the other people's information is. Mm. So you, know, you could be 100% right <laughs> with your information. No one else knows it. It's useless. Because <laughs> you run out of money before they know. Right. So you've, got to, so you've got to basically bring all those different things together. And how do you bring those different things together? So first we said, okay, what, what can I do differently? So our big thing really was weather. And hiring Richard Puddyfoot in 2008 was really a good move. So then I had someone who understood weather, understood what weather means. I understood weather, but I could never quite get to the data. Right. So you need someone who can interpret data for you and put it into English. It's all fine listening to some clever weather person, but if you don't understand what they're saying, it's not helpful. So you, you basically need to understand the data. Then you've got to understand what the probabilities are mm. of those things happening again. And then you've got to make put that into your whole mm. overall equation. So, so what I'm really saying is get the very best people you can. Make sure you have a very balanced team. Mm. So if you have a research department of five people, they all need to have different skills. And you need someone who's going to be the leader. And in general, research people are not natural leaders. Right. Because they're researchers. So if you think of a professor at university, um, you know, they tend not to be leaders. That's why they're professors. Mm-hmm. So you basically got to have a structure. And the way to do that is you've got to have a meeting once a week with your research team. Otherwise, they're gofting all sorts of stuff that's completely irrelevant to me, but it's a nice academic exercise for them. So I think, uh, you know, structure, permanently keeping a, a, an agenda and a spread of different talents and different experiences. And they need to go to the countries, mm. you know, if you don't go to Ghana, you don't understand it. Very true. I guess that's why a lot of these companies uh, have these rotational programs, right? Where they uh, will send you to the different origins. Um, yeah. yeah, that's uh, that's one thing I remember. Uh, that was how uh, I think I've, I first got a chance to to meet you was uh, was on your your research calls, um, which I, I remember yeah. was structured on a you know weekly or semi weekly basis, um, and I, I think that was. That was really cool. That was the first time I had seen it in that way. Um, but basically, it was harnessing the power of the research in a sort of an action-oriented way. Like, here's the the intel, the research for the week, you know. And then we would have a chat about how to how to profit off of that, right? How to how to trade it. So, what was exactly. your what was your philosophy on using that research and and trading? Um, and I let me let me phrase it this way. One of the things I was always taught as a trader was that you need to be on the phone every day talking to people 
Um, and I don't know if that was the similar in the cocoa market or not, but it sounds like you really knew, if not personally, a lot of the key players in the cocoa industry, uh, you knew who everybody was and, and you had an idea about what they were doing. Um, so was it like, um, sort of like, uh, what was your philosophy of trading? Was it like, Hey, I'm, I'm bullish. So I'm going to go here. Or was it more like a poker game where you're saying, I think this guy's going to do this and that guy's going to do that. Therefore here's an opportunity. Now I never have uh, got confused by making a mistake or worrying about what the other guy is doing. Who cares what the other guy is doing? Wrong is irrelevant. Okay, I care on what I'm going to do, mm. <laughs> and um, so I have a plan what I'm going to do, and maybe there'll be opportunities to make it do better because what other people are doing. But I worked for someone a long time ago who could only anything ever could talk about was what's Fred doing, what's Harry doing. I mean, really, who cares? We don't know <laughs> what they're doing. Uh, and we can make it up and guess, but we don't know. And up and say, you know, I'm going to do this. I mean, why would you tell your competition that? I never would. So I don't expect someone to do it to me, you see. So my philosophy was always work out what you, what you want to do based on your fundamental information mm. okay is there an opportunity and maybe the opportunity is not for a year ahead so our strategies would often be like a two-year strategy very rarely would it be god there's a great opportunity this week It'd be much more building up building up building uh so you have an overpowering position mm without the market discovering it till it's way too late. Yeah, that's... Uh, so that was more than philosophy. And of course, I know, I know everybody in the market and um, some of them talked to me and some of them didn't. <laughs> right. But, that, but that's fine. <laughs> that's interesting because, yeah, I have a friend who's a, a cocoa trader and he used to always tell me, Brian, the fundamentals don't matter. And uh, <laughs> and I think his frustration was that the cocoa market was small enough that um, people, you know, industry. If you had a, if you had a big position, you could kind of move the market around or kind of bully the market into the prices that you wanted. Um, but but it sounds like that was never your philosophy. Your philosophy was always, what are the fundamentals? I'm going to get a long term view and see if I can get an edge or a lead on it. And then, yeah. and then put that position on. Okay. I mean, you're never bigger than the market. So you know, that's a kind of very important lesson. And you are never bigger than the market. You might be bigger than the market for a week. Mm. <laughs> if you're wrong, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, this friend of yours who says that, he's totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> The fundamentals really do matter because if you're going against the fundamentals in the end, you will lose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he'll be very interested to hear that. I think I'm going to be glad for the shout out. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, did you, I, I guess I like to conclude with, I want to be respectful of your time here. I asked for an hour, so we've got about uh, 10 or 15 minutes left. Um, 
So I wanted to conclude if you're still uh, looking at the market, if you're still thinking about it uh, with some forecasting and say like, what, what, are you, what are you thinking about? What is your big pictures here? Uh, but before I do, I just wanted to quickly touch on, um, I understand that you, uh, you're a rally car racer um, and that you've done some sailing, that you do competitive sailing. Um, and apparently uh, you were racing around the streets of London uh, without a helmet and uh, uh, no side view mirrors. <laughs> so does that go to your energy? You mentioned energy as a trader, or do you have a, do you have a bit of a, an, uh, an interest in, in risk taking? It sounds like you're someone who likes to manage risk. Yeah, of course. I love risk. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's normal. <laughs> I find it strange that people don't like it. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting. It's not, you know, I mean, if you, if you take a little risk here and there, you can make differences. And of course, I'm, I'm more risk averse than I was as I've gotten older. Yeah. You know, I really wanted to race a car 200 miles an hour anymore. <laughs> it's going to really hurt if I crash. <laughs> And I probably don't want to ride a motorbike at 150 miles an hour either because it's going to kill me if I crash. So you do you do tone down in all of your all of your risks. But as a person, yes, I've I think risk has been an important part of my my makeup, yeah. and I'm not scared of it. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? So I guess uh, part of being yeah. alive is figuring out what the risks are and managing them, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think you know, one of the, my great advantages in my life is I didn't start with any money. So I've never really been scared to take risk with money because I didn't have any at the beginning and I had a pretty good time. Mm. So if I don't have any at the end, it's okay too. Fair enough. And uh, uh, so I, think, I think that makes you much more willing to take risk. Okay. And... Um, so let's conclude with uh, your thoughts on the market now. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on coffee, if you're following coffee still. Um, and, also, and also we could touch on cocoa as well. Um, maybe coffee is the more interesting one these days. Uh, from what I understand in cocoa, the, uh, there's yeah, not as much of a story. Uh, coffee is a very interesting story right now. And um, I, I think we haven't seen the highs. And coffee. Uh, I think it'll get more and more frightening. I think the roasters are not very familiar with having a market like this and will tend to make mistake and repeat the mistake. So I would think New York above three mm. and maybe a bit sooner than the market thinks. And I think Robusta looks ridiculously cheap. Robusta 2200 bucks or something. I mm. think that does look way too cheap. And I, I can see Robusta trading really much, much higher. Mm. Uh, I would think we'll see Robusta trade at $3,000 for sure. And then when, the, when, the, when it's over, the collapse is going to be pretty spectacular in both markets. So the next real trade is not actually trying to get 
the next 40 cents out of New York or 50 or whatever it is. Uh, I think you can be a long robusta. So I, I think the downside's super low. Right. I think Arabica, it's, uh, you can be long with options, but I personally wouldn't be long with futures here. Mm. And I certainly wouldn't be short if you just said, because I think you could be taken out in, in half an hour. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's different being long at 150 to being long at 250. Uh, having said that, I wouldn't be, I would certainly not be surprised to see it trade 350. So the next big timing thing is really when you go short. And we don't really know the answer to that yet. You know, the, this, this crop that's coming, uh, that's, uh, it's on the trees right now. There's a hugely wide number between the forecasters for the Arabica part of the crop. You know, I think it's like 37 or 42 or something. Mm. Well, <clears throat> that's a very big difference after the crop we've just had. So if it's 37, this market's definitely going a lot higher. Yeah. And, uh, and probably will go even higher. And uh, that assumes that the weather continues to be reasonable. Imagine if we get a frost in July or August this year. Yeah. Katie Barthes. Basically, <laughs> you can't short it. So you can't short it. And you can't short structure either. So <clears throat> it's a very dangerous market. I think, I think you could consider doing something. Mm. You consider doing something if this crop ends up at 42 plus. And we're through the frost season. So then I think you could think about going short like September, this September coming. Hmm. But I want to be very sure that the crop is at the higher end of the numbers. And that will be a great trade because that trade will be all the way back down to one. Right. So that's my, that's my analysis of coffee. So it's a bit boring because I, I think it's, uh, it's basically too dangerous to trade. Yeah, but that's um, well. I wouldn't say it's boring, right? <laughs> um, but I, I think uh, that's actually a really insightful comment, which is that the bear market, in a lot of ways, is the easier market to trade if you want the safer bet, because we all know once it hits three dollars, it's not going to stay there. Yeah. Um, so very good. And uh, what about cocoa? I've been understanding that um, uh, my my understanding is that there's there's not as much of a story in cocoa that people kind of want there to be something like coffee, but that the the fundamentals don't really support anything like that at this point. It's true. I mean, I think the, fund the fundamentals in cocoa, we we just we just have plenty of cocoa. <laughs> I mean, the crops the crops have been good. Uh, they were very good last year. The crops this year are not bad. Mm. Luckily, consumption is very, very good. But overall production is pretty satisfactory. I mean, they only, you know, Ghana has got a poor crop this year. Uh, but Arikos probably made up for that pretty much. So we have a deficit this year for sure. At least that's what I think. Uh, but probably not as big as the surplus we had last season. Right. Do I think cocoa looks cheap? I mean, there's all these guys in Granica Barry who all have a beer every night and say, God, cocoa's cheap. Everything else is expensive. Um, well, good for them. They might be right. I don't, I don't, certainly, I, there's no point in being short of cocoa at 1,600 pounds. Mm. Okay, do I really want to be long of cocoa at $3,000? No. So that's the problem. So 
you know, I the industry also will want to maintain cover because everything else is so volatile. So they don't want to look dumb. And uh, we have the risk of the next drop for the next few months. So, and we have deficit. So I, I said we've seen the lows, which I think were about 2,200 or 2,300 bucks, maybe 2,400. Uh, we've seen the lows and we probably might not have seen the highs, but it, it's not terribly exciting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you can have a very big position uh, in cocoa to make some money. And coffee can have a very small position to make some money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And right. I'd say that's my best advice to everybody is, look, you know, 100 lots, when I mean, the price is one cent, mm. is completely different to 100 lots when it's two. And uh, I think sometimes traders, traders forget that. Meaning they kind of their ego wants them to put on a bigger position, or they just kind of forget the the value of the <laughs> of the contract. They forget, they forget that basically a hundred lots is um, is <laughs> is got a value, and that value at two is twice what it is at one. Yeah, and a five percent move is twice as big. Mm. Yeah, ten cent day in coffee used to be a big deal. Now it's just a Tuesday, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It doesn't mean anything. So, so there you go. Well, Anthony, I, I really appreciate your time. This was really cool. Um, I, I have so many more questions I'd love to ask you, but um, let's uh, let's keep it where it is for now. And then maybe if we chat again, we can talk about spreads and the arbitrage and some of your other um, insights there. But um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, Ron. Bye for now. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining our Coffee Trading Academy podcast. Check out the website and subscribe to receive our free and premium coffee market reports. That's www.coffeetradingacademy.com. Again, coffeetradingacademy.com. Good luck with your trading, everyone. This is Ryan Delaney, your Coffee Price Risk Ninja here, signing off.